Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. And of course, if you're a Patreon supporter of mine, then your questions go to the very top of my question queue. So this week, a couple points I wanted to make. One, I am now in the 170s of something numbers of shows here of Q&A episodes. I never imagined that this show would keep going this long and that you guys would have so many amazing and good questions for me. And I wanted to thank all of you because you guys are the ones who actually make this show possible because you're the ones who are creating you know, the content through your questions. And they have really been amazing. So thank you very much for all of you who have contributed to this over the years now that we've been doing this. And uh, there really is no end in sight on it. So uh, also this week I did an, a really good podcast with uh, Ron Miscavige Sr., the father of David Miscavige. And if you haven't seen that or heard it, I highly encourage you to check it out. We discuss Scientology, life at the international headquarters, Shelley Miscavige, and many other things. And even more importantly, this last Thursday I posted a video called Learned Helplessness. And I actually feel that that video, and especially based on some of the feedback I've been getting from some of you guys who have watched it, is probably one of the more important videos that I've, that I've produced uh, lately. It, it was a talk with Rachel Bernstein uh, about this phenomena of learned helplessness. And if any of you are wondering why it is that people get stuck in abusive relationships, high control groups, you know, cults, uh, and can't feel like, they, they feel like they can't get out. They feel like they're physically trapped in these groups, despite the fact that there isn't, that there aren't necessarily physical barriers holding them back or holding them in. This episode will really explain a lot of what's going on there. So I really, really encourage you to check it out. Uh, that was posted this last Thursday on my channel. Again, it's called Learned Helplessness. So all that being said, let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Peta Hall, do you ever worry or feel that OSA may in fact spend money on fake Patreons for you? Or does that explicitly contravene the edict that an ex-member slash SP may be ruined utterly? The way the policy is applied certainly does not seem to be either equal or make sense to me. For example, an OSA operative infiltrated some people's business for several years while being quite a good salesperson and was therefore temporarily an asset for them, I seem to recall. Actually, there are countless instances of this policy being applied rather haphazardly, so perhaps the question above isn't that silly after all. Well, it certainly wouldn't be without precedent that Scientology has spent a great deal of money in order to get close to or uh, defuse a potential critic or an active critic of Scientology. Uh, Scientology doesn't have a problem spending money in order to deal with whatever they feel they need to deal with according to whatever weird logic they're using. So it's not inconceivable that somebody could be, you know, sending some money my way in order to uh, try to defuse me. The problem with somebody being a Patreon supporter of mine is they're not going to defuse me or stop me by doing that. I, uh, I think I recently uh, talked about the fact that I had gotten a, a, an interesting email that was offering me money, supposedly, potentially from a Scientologist, at least that's what the email said. And that um, if I, you know, took this money and shut down my channel and signed an NDA, then I would be, you know, I would no longer be talking about Scientology and I'd have this, you know, amount of money given to me. Now, maybe that was real and maybe it wasn't, but I'm not, I don't come that cheap. <laughs> I'd, in fact, I can't really think of a figure that would 
uh, actually um, be adequate to uh, for me to give up my freedom of speech. So that's that's the real deal there. Is I, I can't really think of any any amount of money that would that I'd be willing to accept that would shut me up. So uh, certainly nobody who's supporting me on Patreon is giving me enough money to do that. And no one on Patreon has even intimated or even come close to setting off any red flags or warning signs with me. And I, and I do pay attention to all of the communications that I get to watch for any of those red flags or warning signs. And, um, and I get them sometimes, but I haven't gotten them from that end of things. So sure, it's entirely possible that somebody from the Office of Special Affairs has worked out some operation to get people close to me and I don't know about it. Um, you know, it would be rather uh, arrogant of me to think that I am impervious to that or that I'd, I'd spot them coming from a mile away or something because while many of the operations that the Office of Special Affairs engages in are pretty silly and pretty open and you can kind of see if you understand how they work, what they're trying to do, they're not a bunch of idiots. And if they set up something over here to distract or misdirect attention while they're doing something over here, that would not be beyond them. You know, they're, like I said, they're not a bunch of idiots. So, um, so it's possible. You know, anything is possible. But I don't really think that that, that would be the case. Generally speaking, um, you know, OSA has been pretty defanged at this point. And I specifically have not really been targeted by the church more so than a, a hate website, which really only helped me in the end. I mean, I'm not happy that that exists. I'm not happy that my ex-wife, you know, went on video and, and trash talked me. I mean, that, why would I be happy about that? You know, I, I still like her. I think she's a good person. I know why she was made to do that. And I know why she went along with it. Um, I don't have, you know, animosity towards her particularly, um, I, and she does toward me, and I understand why. But, um, you know, beyond that, and some weird emails I get from time to time, I haven't really particularly experienced a lot of fair gaming. And I think the reason for that really has more to do with timing than it does with my content. I mean, I've, I've put out, you know, perfectly good content exposing lots of things about the church and its abuses, and I've interviewed tons of people on that topic, but I came out uh, and I'm not international or even, you know, nationwide mass media coverage. You know, my channel is relatively small compared to other uh, things that expose Scientology and the church only has so many assets and resources to, you know, to use to go after critics. And I think they don't particularly consider me much of a threat compared to Leah Remini, Mike Rinder, Marty Rathbun, when he was actually on the warpath and not, uh, you know, turncoat. And, uh, and that's kind of why I think I sort of have, you know, maneuvered under the radar or whatever of, of the Office of Special Affairs. And also, of course, I'm not doing this so that I'll get a lot of attention from the Church of Scientology. I'm perfectly happy with that state of affairs. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with not being fair game. That's not some badge of honor I'm looking for. So I just want to tell the truth and I want to, you know, keep talking about uh, how these operations work, both Scientology and other destructive cults. And I want to, you know, help educate people who come to this channel, and I want to help people get out of those situations, and that's really all I'm, I'm about. So, uh, anyway, so I think that's what I can say about that. Nick C. 
In your Santa Barbara years, have you ever come across a dude named Reed Slatkin? He worked at the Celebrity Center between approximately 1975 and 1984, then moved to Santa Barbara and started offering investment management services to fellow Scientologists. Among the high-profile Scientologists he roped in were Ann Archer, Giovanni Ribisi, Greta Van Susteren, and Sky Dayton. In reality, it was a Ponzi scheme, which gradually unraveled between mid-1990s and 2001 when he was arrested. He pleaded guilty in 2003. He actually claimed something along the lines of Scientology made me do it, but the church retained Latham and Watkins to fight the allegations. He was sentenced to 14 years of prison, served 10, was released to a halfway house in Long Beach in 2013, and died in 2015. Oh yeah, good old Reed Slatkin. I actually met him and interacted with him a few times in Santa Barbara. He lived in Hope Ranch, which was sort of the rich, rich area of Santa Barbara. Uh, that was where Bob Duggan and Trish Duggan and their family actually lived as well. I don't know if they're still there or uh, if they're even still together. But, um, but then I'd been to the Duggan's house. I'd been to Slatkin's house. Reed Slatkin did not come around the church very often. Uh, the local Santa Barbara org was tiny. It was, a, it was, you know, it was on State Street, which was the main street of Santa Barbara. It had tons and tons of walk-by traffic, but most of that was tourists or college students. And they weren't particularly interested in doing a whole lot with Dianetics and Scientology. And we weren't really that good at reaching out and bringing them in and, and that sort of thing. Uh, I sure as hell wasn't. I was not at all interested in being out on the street passing out flyers or, or selling books. But getting back to Reed Slatkin, um, he was one of those people and, and a, lot of, uh, a lot of local city-level churches experienced this. The high-level, really rich Scientologists are considered flag public. That's what they're called. They go to flag in Clearwater, Florida, or they go down to the Sea Org orgs down in Los Angeles, and that's where they do their services. And that was the case with Reed. So if he came around the local church, it was kind of this special event, you know, ooh, Reed's coming. I mean, not like the same thing as Miscavige coming. It wasn't like we were all scared of Reed Slatkin. It was just he was a power player as far as Scientology was concerned because he was living in Hope Ranch. He had a lot of money. He had a lot of people who were investing money with him, and not just the celebrities and, and um, you know, VIP-type Scientologists that you named, but tons and tons of Scientologists. Later, when, he, when the whole bust happened, I was in the Sea Org by that time, and it was shocking to find out that he had been cheating people uh, out of their money and, and running this Ponzi scheme. This was not something that, the, that Scientology was making him do. This was 1,000% his own invention. The fact that he was giving money to the Church of Scientology, well, of course he was. And the fact that he was, but the fact that he was taking money from Scientologists and running this scheme, the Church of Scientology didn't want that to happen. They wanted all the money, right? They didn't want money going from shuffling from this person to that person to this person to that person to make it look like this person was getting a return on investment, and then this person was getting a return on investment, and then, you know, like, they, that, that's not something that Scientology would particularly be at all interested in, in, in happening. What Scientology would want is for him to be honestly making all those people that money, so all those people could be giving, you know, all of that money to the church. And this included, by the way, amongst his clientele were Sea Org members. There was a guy named Jeff um, I'm forgetting his last name right now, it's not really important, but he was a flag reg. He was a salesperson specifically in Los Angeles. There's an office in the uh, building that I worked in the, whose entire job is to get people to flag in Clearwater. 
uh, it was the, the, the flag, you know, registration office. And this guy, Jeff, was basically the head sales guy there. And he um, had investments. He had some money, I guess. I don't know. You know, there were bonus systems and there were various ways he could have been making money, especially through the 80s and 90s before Miscavige cut a lot of those bonus programs down. Um, and that tradition of bonuses came from L. Ron Hubbard. Hubbard was big on bonuses and, um, as, and used those as an incentive to get his, his crew working more. So uh, Miscavige, you know, like I said, over the years has cut all of that off. But regardless of any of that, Jeff, other Sea Org members had a lot of their money with Reed Slatkin for investment purposes. And when he tanked, they tanked and they lost big. Like basically that he, you know, he, cl he cleaned out their savings. And that was rough. Um, there were a lot of Sea Org members and Scientologists who were so pissed at this guy. I mean, furiously pissed. The same way you'd be furious if your bank tomorrow went bankrupt and all your money was gone. It was like that. And then to find out that your bank was cheating you or that this guy, Reed Slatkin, had been cheating you. I mean, talk about persona non grata. Talk about somebody who got declared immediately, right? I mean, and deserved it. This guy really screwed over a ton of people. But we were clueless about that when I was Santa Barbara staff. He was just another rich person, similar to Bob Duggan, um, on a lesser scale, but we weren't really measuring, you know, uh, bank account figures or anything. He was just a hoity-toity rich guy, and, and that was kind of how we thought of him. His children and his wife did come into the Santa Barbara Org and do services from time to time, especially his wife uh, at the time, Mary Jo Slacken, who, of course, didn't know, I, I guess didn't know about this. I, I actually couldn't speak to her innocence or guilt one way or the other, but she, as far as I know, she didn't get declared. She um, divorced his ass, you know, pretty quickly, as far as I understand, uh, from what happened, if I'm, if I'm remembering right. And, um, and he was definitely standing alone when uh, he stood in the courtroom and, and had, to, had to take his licks. So that's, that's kind of everything I know about Reed Slatkin. So hope that's interesting in some fashion. Stephen Willis. After reading your book and seeing how clunky and inefficient the Sea Org bureaucracy is, the only way I can see anything getting done in a quick way is a direct order from David Miscavige, as proven by your encounter with him. So is the entire upper management of Scientology just full of people trying to get what they want or need via proximity to him? Not exactly. There is a lot of things that go on at local levels, at a, at a continental level with the Sea Org, uh, with the management units or with the service organizations that just run. You know, they, these are self-sufficient organizations that produce their own income, uh, distribute that income, a percentage of it goes up the line to Miscavige, and they just sort of do their day-to-day -day operations, and they're left alone to do that. And, they, and the captains of each of these organizations, which is the equivalent of the the CEO or the head of the organizations, the executive directors, run the day-to-day -day operations of their churches. Uh, they have an executive council that helps them make their decisions and helps them run the different divisions of the organization and uh, service the public or manage the organizations or do you know the various things that they do. The, um, the Pacifica base, for example, PAC, the big blue buildings, have a whole hierarchy of organizations there. There's, a, there's, a, there's three 
major service organizations there, and then there's the management organization, and the head of that management organization is sort of the nominal coordinating head of the service organizations and everything that goes on on the street. Uh, from Los Angeles organization, which is now a Sea Org org, it's staffed only by Sea Org members, through the ASHO, the Advanced, the American St. Hill organization, uh, over to the Advanced Organization of Los Angeles, the AOLA, which delivers the upper, you know, the OT levels through OT5. So all of those organizations kind of mesh and coordinate with each other, and the CLO, which is where I worked for many of those years, the Continental Liaison Office, and this is all explained in my video called Scientology's Organizational Madness. If you're really curious about how, the, how this is all structured, that's, that's the video to watch. But all of these organizations are sort of um, coordinated amongst one another, and they could run by themselves and produce their income and do their delivery and, and make decisions at a local level that affect just them at a local level. When it comes to the big international decisions or the, the game-changing decisions or with the train going this way and now it's going to go this way sort of decisions, that's Miscavige's thing. And uh, so if there was going to be a new international dissemination campaign, if there was going to be the opening of the Scientology media productions, that entire thing was certainly coordinated through David Miscavige. The, the books, the, when the basic books got all revised, he was all over that project. His, his name and uh, hands are everywhere connected with those books and, and all those lectures that were released. So those big kind of projects are where Miscavige uh, runs things. And you're not going to, you know, every one of the, you know, so the people at International Management or at Golden Era Productions who do the design work, do the film work, do the video, the music, all that kind of stuff, that's the stuff that Miscavige has got his hands on. Sometimes... I wouldn't say rarely, it's, it's, it's more often than rarely, but it's, but it's not every day or it's not every even every month. Maybe twice a year, Miscavige might make his presence known directly at Big Blue. Uh, there was a period of time in the late 90s when the Lisa McPherson thing was going down and a number of other things were happening that Miscavige was directly at Flag in Clearwater and he was definitely running that show. And they were doing, him and RTC were doing all kinds of work and uh, organ reorganizi reorganizing flags, internal mechanisms and structures and lines and how people, you know, did their work and that sort of thing. Uh, there was a lot of work being done at that time and he was overseeing all of that. But all, that only slowly creeped over to where we were in, in the Western United States. Uh, and creeped out to the other organizations in the world. So Miscavige never came to LA and did the same thing there. We kind of thought he might, but he didn't. We heard about and implemented some of what was being done at Clearwater when he was there, you know, sort of trying to make things more efficient, make things hum better. You know, they were doing time motion studies of, of how long did it take people to get from here to there and do this and do that and trying to make the place more efficient. But that never really seeped over to the West U.S. a whole lot, or the rest of the you know major organizations in the world. So, Miscavige kind of just hobby horses on whatever it is that he feels like hobby horsing, and when he's doing that, then he's the man and he's the guy who's saying you know calling all the shots. And then when he goes off and disappears, and does whatever it is that he wants to do, whether it's take a vacation in Barbados or 
uh, go off to Europe for a while or do whatever it is he does. I really couldn't speak to his day-to-day schedule or life. Uh, then we just wouldn't be hearing anything from him, you know. Uh, then sometimes we might get, you know, the captains of some of the organizations in, at Big Blue might get a dispatch from him. That was a big deal. You know, if you got some direction from Miscavige directly, whoa, you know, you're all over that uh, at the local level. So, and it was kind of unheard of. I mean, in all the years that I was in management, I think it happened a handful of times that David Miscavige sent a dispatch down to a city-level church, like San Francisco or Denver or something like that. Very rarely. Uh, and by dispatch, I mean an individual communication, like a letter. He would send issues down that would go to everybody in the world, and there were programs that he wrote that went down, and we were expected to get those done. But as far as individual attention, you know, pretty rare. So uh, I think the whole time that I was in the Sea Org, I met him three times, or was in the same room as him three times. There was only one time where I had a direct line with him. We were exchanging uh, letters back and forth, and he was giving me direction on, on training for my job. And I was kind of querying him a little bit about what I wanted to do, and he was kind of coming back to me with various things. So that was the only time. And that, you know, there were a lot of people paying attention to our dispatches, but um, but that was the only time I ever had any, you know, direct communication with him that was longer than a, than a couple minutes. So that was kind of his style with that. So I hope that kind of explains the difference between how th we would operate at a local level versus how they operate at an international level. Uh, this has been a pretty summary version of all of that. I, ho I hope I'm, I'm, I'm kind of communicating the, 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 the picture here. But feel free to ask me any other questions about any of that. Eric Kerner. I've known a number of Scientologists personally and found them to be personable, interesting people, and above all, extremely articulate and able to express themselves. Yet there seems to be a dearth of advanced formal education in the people that run the organization. So my question is whether you know of any authoritative academic studies, PhDs or master's theses, or academics within the organization who have written descriptions and analyses of some kind. I don't mean the Lawrence Wright book, which obviously fulfills that function, but more from within the church itself. How many of its people have actually attended university or hold academic positions of some kind? Well, this is an interesting question, um, really only because you're kind of asking me about something that just doesn't exist. I mean, there are people in Scientology, certainly at the public level, and some who have joined staff or moved up to the Sea Org who have academic shops or degrees of some kind, but, but none of that's used in Scientology. That's not the authority or no, no, one, no one's degrees in Scientology that they earn in college matter at all. No one cares. If anything, an academic, a, a highly skilled academic education in Scientology is sort of, is sort of not, I wouldn't say look down on, but kind of, because Hubbard had really critical things to say about colleges. And basically his point or his point of view on it was that schools are stuffing people full of lies. And, and false information that, uh, that makes it difficult for them to make their way in life or be able to think clearly or be able to analyze situations clearly. If you want to know how to do those things as a Scientologist, you're supposed to study L. Ron Hubbard. 
He's got the data series. I've done videos about this. I did podcasts with, uh, with Jeff and, and John P. Capitalist about it. Those, that data series uh, is all about this and about how to analyze situations and come up with, with reasons why things happen, uh, come up with uh, how to remedy situations, how to fix organizational problems. All of that is covered by the evaluations that are done in the data series. So if somebody came into Scientology with a PhD in business or in, uh, in anything, really, I mean, it wouldn't really matter what the discipline was, and started telling Scientologists how their organization should be run according to those principles, they'd be told to shut the fuck up. <laughs> they'd be told that Hubbard figured all this stuff out already. It's in all the policy letters, it's in all the bulletins, and that's how we run Scientology. We don't use WOG tech, and I understand that that's a very derogatory term and I'm using it advisedly. That's how they talk about the technology, mechanisms, methods, techniques of the outside world, the world outside Scientology. And they invalidate it, they look down on it, they don't give it any real credibility. The Church of Scientology, the Office of Special Affairs, has specifically commissioned academic studies of Scientology only to gain credibility and PR value for the church in the eyes of non-Scientologists. They pay good money for those kind of studies to get done, and there is a, a sort of a cater or a small, you know, I don't even want to say small, there's a group of academics, I have spoken about this before, who are, act as Scientology uh, or cult apologists. And for whatever reason, and there are a multitude of reasons why these people do this, and all of them are, are grossly intellectually dishonest. Um, but they have you know, come up with these uh, academic papers that support Scientology's religiosity and its methods and the fact that it's a new religious movement and it should be left alone to just do its own thing. And these people, it, routinely these academics, ignore the abuses, it, flat out invalidate any uh, stories or testimonials from apostates. They consider that we all just have big axes to grind and our, and our word is mud. So they don't pay any much of a t much attention to us, and even though we're literally dishing on everything about it and telling all about the real experience of it, they don't care because they have what you know the the money that comes from the church or the the notoriety that comes from uh, publishing you know because in academia it's publish or perish, so they can publish these papers. It's very easy to do to just regurgitate Scientology's promotional materials. And so you don't, you know, so you have this whole slice of academia that contributes to that. And the Scientology uses them to Scientology's advantage. The academics like Stephen Kent, Hugh Urban, you know, some of these other guys who uh, have done real studies of Scientology and who, who talk honestly and openly about the abuses as well as the belief systems of Scientology, the church isn't into those guys, and uh, they, you know, they're they're SPs, they're bad guys. So uh, Scientology doesn't have any use for those kind of academics, right? And if somebody came into Scientology pushing that kind of rhetoric, well, they'd just be kicked right out, you know. So uh, so they're, you know, so yeah, destructive cults like Scientology, any of these groups, you know, will use academics to the degree that they are helpful or support the cults 
you know, lies, really. Uh, and to the degree that they don't, they have no use for them. And that's kind of really the bottom line with that. Sammy Hutsunin. What is the biggest known secret within the Sea Organization? Meaning, something everyone knows but nobody wants to talk about. Or biggest thing that everyone knows is a scam slash lie slash false information, but nobody dares to question it and just kind of goes with it. Thanks for this question, Sammy. It's an interesting one and I gave it quite a bit of thought. Um, I'm going to say that I think the biggest elephant in the room, so to speak, especially at the level of the Sea Org, um, where I think it's most apparent, is the idea that L. Ron Hubbard's issues and bulletins and lectures are the single source of where Scientology authority and activities come from. Because you learn pretty quickly that David Miscavige, as the head of Scientology, issues orders and directions that are contrary to L. Ron Hubbard's policies all the damn time. And they do it anyway. The people follow those orders and directions anyway because David Miscavige is revered. He is the one who got the IRS tax exemption pushed through. He's the one who's responsible personally for the golden age of tech, the golden age of knowledge, the golden age of dissemination, the golden age of tech phase two, and every other golden age of nonsense that he has pushed out since the mid-90s. So he is the head honcho. He's the guy who whose dictates and orders and directions must be followed without question. And if you even think about not following something he has said to do, the group will, you know, just come, they'll just eat you alive. I mean, there's just zero tolerance for any questioning of David Miscavige's orders and directions. And I've given lots of examples in the past on this show and in other videos I've done of, of how that works. But it's, believe me, it is just it's black and white you he, you get an order from him you are to comply with it exactly and precisely and you are to you know how high sir salute with both hands regardless it doesn't matter what the order is and it doesn't matter how many l ron hubbard policies or dictates it violates and people see this because you know, Eric said, like other people have commented many times here, Scientologists are not a bunch of morons. They're not idiots. They see what's going on. They see, they can, they can observe what's happening. It's just that their cognitive dissonance, you know, kind of forces them into, and their belief system that they've held, that they hold onto so tightly, forces them, in, you know, to follow certain paths and, and to, to, you know, avoid others. And so questioning David Miscavige is one of those things that you just avoid. You just figure it out in your head and you reconcile it because if you don't, you will be made to figure it out and reconcile it. Otherwise, you're going to be history pretty quick. There is a very low tolerance within the world of Scientology for anyone questioning, disobeying, querying, wondering anything about you know, David Miscavige's orders. Uh, I learned this very early on. I think I've told this story before, but I'll tell you guys again just to give you the idea of this. Um, David Miscavige, in, when I was Santa Barbara staff back in 1993, I think it was, um, I was um, a, a technical person. I was a supervisor over the courses and the delivery of auditing in Santa Barbara. Tiny little podunk org, like I've said. And we got this order from David Miscavige. And it was about doing a very technical procedure. And this was not something I'd ever seen David Miscavige 
talk about or, or you know, give orders about before. But he described how everybody in the world was doing this particular procedure wrong and how now they, you know, he clarified why they were doing it wrong. He was not correct in what he said, but he was expounding on this. And he said that everybody needed to redo the training step that taught you how to do this technical procedure. And I was one of the people who was going to have to do this. Well, I read this issue and I understood what he was saying. And I said, well, this isn't my problem. I don't, I don't do this. So I queried his order. I, you know, and, and the people in the, in the Santa Barbara organization were like, well, okay, if you want to do that, you go right ahead. And they weren't putting their name on it. I was the one putting my name on it. So I sent this, this formal query of his order up the line to David Miscavige. This was according to an L. Ron Hubbard policy called orders query of. If you get an order and you don't like it or you think it violates policy or you think it's you know, not correct, you can query it. It's within your rights to do that. So I did. And I said that this order specifically violated uh, another Hubbard policy called inspecting before the fact where you try to correct something that doesn't need to be corrected because of some arbitrary order, blanket order, just like was what was happening. Within two days of me sending this order, two people from RTC, the Religious Technology Center, which is David Miscavige's personal organization, very, very high up, the highest organization in Scientology, showed up in Santa Barbara in person to deal with me. They took me into a room, put me on the e-meter, asked me all kinds of invasive questions about my personal life and what kind of ethics situations I was involved in, whether there was some kind of out ethics, you know, wrongdoing that I was involved in. And then, and then got onto this thing of where did you get the idea to query an order from David Miscavige? Now, I'm this lowly staff member in a podunk church, and these two guys show up in full Sea Org regalia to deal with me because I dared to question David Miscavige. So I'm freaking out. I'm sitting there in this chair, and this person is like, Where'd you get this idea? And I'm like, L. Ron Hubbard policy? And, you know, like, that's what Hubbard said to do? And they're like, yeah, but, but where'd you get the idea to do this? Who told you to do this? And I'm like, well, nobody really told me. I'm the one who came up with the idea. And we went back and forth on this for two hours. Bam, bam. Who was it? Who was it? Because I was this lowly staff member, but they weren't thinking I was the SP. They figured some other person had gotten to me that would make me think that David Miscavige somehow wasn't the Greek god of Scientology and that I needed to be dealt with. So eventually, I don't even remember what we came up with, but we figured some you know, weird permutation of somebody saying something to me that somehow would give me the idea that maybe David Miscavige could possibly be wrong about something. And that was the end of that interview. And then this other guy took me in a room and ran me through this technical procedure to check me out on it. And of course, he was going to find every little thing that I could possibly do wrong. Mainly, I was screwing up because of the authority status. I mean, this was God coming down and like, you know, working me over on this procedure. I already had an ethics interview. I'd already been raked over the coals. I knew I was in a lot of trouble. And now this guy was going to show me the what for on this technical procedure. So he grills me on it. And of course, you know, finds things that I'm doing that are wrong because I'm nervous as hell. And, um, and then demands that I do it right, you know, and, and we figure that out and then they leave. And the end result of that entire encounter 
was that I had it baked into my brain. This was even before I got into the Sea Org. Uh, just a lowly little staff member that I would never, ever dare to query an order from David Miscavige. So that's how that kind of thing works, you know? So that's, that was, uh, you know, that's kind of the elephant in the room there is, you know, it, it, the David Miscavige's orders are senior to L. Ron Hubbard. And you would never, ever say that out loud, ever. Because L. Ron Hubbard is the nominal head and source and senior, you know, figure of Scientology. But everyone knows that's not really true. So there you go. It is time for Flash Answers. Ascari Navarro. Would you ever get a tattoo? Well, as a matter of fact, I would. In fact, uh, I got this one a while ago. Uh, this is my resistance tattoo, which serves double duty. Uh, and today, I actually got a tattoo. You can't read it because it's all fuzzy here. But this says, uh, I got this from uh, Pat Oswalt, actually, uh, in the last, last uh, I forgot what it was called, but it was the last stand-up comedy routine he did where he talked about his wife dying and um, and uh, something she had said that you know or, or that he came up with I can't remember exactly but the term the phrase here is it's chaos be kind that you know life is rough basically and the solution and the really the real way to be with people is you know is be kind because everybody's kind of working through their own struggles and and nobody really has it easy in this world and it's pretty crazy and uh and so maybe we could be kinder to each other and so i liked that so much i thought those four words were were so powerful to me that i i decided i'd, I'd get a tattoo of it uh so those are my those are my tats <laughs> thomas schmitz is the term WOG really used frequently by any and all Scientologists? Also, do you think Tom Cruise has indeed not seen his daughter Suri in years? If not, is it because he is obeying Miscavige, or do you think he's willingly not seeing her because he wants to prove how dedicated he is to Scientology? Yes, the term WOG is used by any and all Scientologists. And uh, as far as Tom Cruise goes, Tom Cruise is a fanatic. He is as far down the rabbit hole of Scientology as you can go. If he decides at some point to change his mind, I will be unbelievably shocked and awed and surprised by that because I personally know things, uh, you know, I've heard stories about his behavior and of course we've all seen Lawrence Wright's book and the Going Clear documentary and what Leah has said about him, um, you know, behind the scenes stories, I've heard some things that haven't really come out into the public yet. I hope, you know, eventually get him out on my channel. but. Uh, I have absolutely no respect for Tom Cruise whatsoever. He is a cretin and a narcissist. And, um, and if he were to actually come out of Scientology, he would have so much explaining to do uh, that I, you know, him coming out alone and saying, I'm no longer a Scientologist would not be anywhere close to good enough. Not even remotely. That guy has serious, serious explaining and apologizing to do to a lot of people. He presents himself on the screen as this really nice, amazing action hero guy who's courageous and amazing and flies and does this and does that and plays guitar and sings. And, you know, he's just like, you know, a treble, triple, quadruple threat of everything. Well, screw Tom Cruise. He's an asshole. And uh, I, you know, don't say that about a lot of people. But with him, what you see on the screen is not what you get with him.
he is not a good person. And that's all I'm going to say about him right now. Mr. Marathon, 1989. Do you know any Scientology jokes? Okay, yeah, I know one. Um, after all these years, I've only remembered one. It's not like there was a lot of them, okay? Scientologists are not generally um, people who make a lot of jokes uh, because of reasons I've explained before. They're not into making jokes about Scientology. And this one is a psychiatry joke. And maybe it's not original with Scientology, but I, I only heard it when I was there. And it was, how many, um, how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? Uh, well, it only takes one but the light bulb has to really want to change. So, there you go. Okay guys, that is the show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around. Please leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section below here on this channel. And if you appreciate and like uh, and are entertained and educated by what I do, please, please consider supporting my channel through Patreon. I really could use your support to keep this thing going. Uh, it is what keeps a roof over my head and keeps this camera turned on and keeps me able to produce the content that I produce. And I really mean that. So I could really appreciate uh, and use some more support from you guys. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next time. Bye-bye.